I've wanted to talk a little bit about John Wesley and his sermon, which was called On the Uses of Money. And um, I actually read his sermon years ago. I, I found it in a little book I bought at a Lifeline book sale. I think I might have paid $2 for the book, princely sum. And I, I, read, I read his sermon, and, and it has always stayed with me because I thought it was so insightful. So I want to talk a little bit about his sermon on, on the use of money. Now, it was written a long time ago, 1736, I think. I didn't actually check up on the date. Um, I may be wrong about that, but it was fairly early on in the 18th century. He lived for most of the 18th century. So he saw a lot of change in his life because after about 1770, the Industrial Revolution kicked off in England and there was massive, massive changes in society as people moved out of rural areas and into the cities and started working in factories. And the whole of society changed as a result of the Industrial Revolution. And there are lots of inventions. You know, God is good. He gives people what the old, the uh, King James Version of the Bible calls witty inventions. It was things like the invention of the horse collar, which allowed horses to draw a load without choking. That improved the efficiency of ploughing the land and, and using other equipment on the land. It was the invention of hay, which is it's a pretty simple invention when you think about it, really. To make hay, all you've got to do is cut the grass and let it dry out until it's got a moisture content of approximately 12%. And then you can put it all together in bales and store it. And as long as it doesn't get wet, in which case it'll probably catch fire, that's a funny thing, but it will. And you can store it for quite a few years. And so the horse collar greatly increased the efficiency of tilling the land. Um, hay greatly increased the efficiency of animal husbandry because you could keep more animals over the winter. So you didn't have to slaughter as many. That increased the productivity of agriculture greatly and enabled labour to be released out of the fields and into the factories. And of course it was the invention of the steam engine and the spinning jenny that led to the Industrial Revolution in the first place. And uh, actually, I've been doing some reading. I actually found an academic paper that was published way back in 1936. I wasn't alive then. I was born 20 years later. But this academic had actually looked at what was happening to prices and wages in the United Kingdom from 1695 around to around 1825. And despite some of the stories that we hear about the Industrial Revolution, on the whole, it actually made people a lot better off because although prices were increasing, wages increased, and for part of that time during the Industrial Revolution, wages in general were increasing more rapidly than prices, and so people's standard of living was rising, although there still was a lot of poverty. And one reason that poverty wasn't addressed was that the political system kind of hadn't got on to the idea that politicians or, or members of parliament might have some role to play in alleviating poverty. It was actually left to the church. And actually it was the role of the church because if you know what the Bible says, the Bible says we're meant to care about the poor. And in fact many of the criticisms that the prophets had of the religious leaders of the day, many of the criticisms that Jesus had of the religious leaders in his time, they surrounded the lack of compassion for the poor. 
and how the religious elite were actually exploiting the poor. Well, funnily enough, during the 18th century, the church, which was mainly the Anglican church at the time, or the Church of England, it didn't really care about the poor. And, and you see, one of the reasons was, theologically, people didn't have the same understanding that we have today, that our God is a God with whom we can have a personal relationship. In fact, they were inclined to be deists. And the deist idea is that God set everything in motion and he kind of sits up in heaven and he just watches it unfold. And so that leads to a kind of fatalist thinking about life. And if you're poor, well, you're poor and that's just too bad. You might be poor because you're indolent. Maybe you had a bit of bad luck. Well, that's just the way it goes. And so during the 18th century, the church itself didn't do a lot to alleviate poverty. It was more through the changes in technology and the massive changes in the organisation of society through which people's standard of living began to rise. So there was such massive, massive change. But the poor were neglected. And really, although there was charity for the poor, that is not enough to actually lift people out of poverty. I'll talk about that another day because there are ways of lifting people out of poverty. You do need some charity, but charity is not the long-term answer to poverty, but that's really for another day. John Wesley was born in 1703. His, uh, his dad, Samuel, was an Anglican minister, and uh, he wasn't all that wealthy. He, he was actually... Um, ministering in one of the poorest parishes in, in England. Him and his wife Susanna, they had 19 children, 10 of whom survived. He was number 10. And uh, perhaps because of substandard nutrition when he was a little, a little lad, he was pretty short. He was only 5 foot 3. Uh, I, can't, I don't know what that is in centimetres. Someone can work that out for me if you want. But that's pretty short. A five foot three person would probably come up to about here. You five foot three, stand up. Tamara, you're famous. You're the same height as John Wesley. How about that as a claim to fame? Right? She's like John Wesley. How good is that? There you go. You can keep that for free. I won't charge you for that one. Five foot three. So he had to stand on a chair or a box when he preached because no one could see him. <laughs> Anyway, his parents were pretty poor. There were a lot of mouths to feed. They were in a poor parish. And in fact, his father Samuel got carted off to debtor's prison twice uh, during the period in which uh, John Wesley was growing up. So he was acutely aware of poverty because he'd experienced it himself. It turns out he was a pretty bright lad. He uh, eventually went to university in, in, in Oxford. And um, he graduated successfully, and he was actually given a position there. In his first year, he earned 30 pounds, and he spent 28 just on normal living. He gave the two pounds away. Gradually, uh, through his life, his income increased until he was earning a thousand pounds a year. Have a guess how much he continued to spend on his annual living expenses. 28 pounds, right? So uh, you work it out, when he was earning a thousand pounds a year, he was only 
living on 28 pounds, he was actually giving away 98% of his income. Now, I'm not recommending that, and I'll explain why in a little while. I don't recommend that. Um, like, if you've got enough, by all means, give away 98%. But it can get to the point where it's actually dysfunctional, and I will explain that uh, in a little while. So, uh, John Wesley ended up being a curate for his own dad back in, in the parish where he was brought up. He was eventually fully ordained as an Anglican minister. And um, he, he was invited to go to Georgia in the United States to a place called Savannah and take over a church there. He was spectacularly unsuccessful because he had started to develop his ideas, which were called Methodist ideas, and that had to do with the way that he approached a kind of holistic theology. And um, the people over there in Georgia didn't take to him very kindly. And he was very unsuccessful because he couldn't convince his congregation that they should uh, live according to John Wesley's rules or John Wesley's principles, perhaps, I should say. And a lot of his congregation left. He also had a very unhappy uh, love relationship he fell in love with a woman, he wanted to marry her. She actually eventually went off and married another woman. And there was a court case. I'm not exactly sure of the details of the court case, but he actually ended up being hauled before a court. So he went back home very bitter and disappointed. Well, um, while he was at university, his brother Charles had been involved in a, a, a religious society. And um, this society they placed a very, very high emphasis on holiness, on living a good, holy life. They were committed to taking communion every week, and they studied the Bible and discussed it for three hours every afternoon. Um, we might find it pretty hard to find the time to do that for three hours every afternoon, and our society is not really organised in such a way as to make that even vaguely possible. But these were some of the things these guys were doing. And they, they were ridiculed, of course, because they were seen as these holy people. And the so-called holiness movement actually grew up from that little group of people meeting at Oxford University. And the holiness movement has had a significant impact on the development of Pentecostalism over the last couple of hundred years. Well, it's not that long, probably. Um, yeah, be close to 200 years now. So um, we, we've got some heritage in Methodism in Pentecostal churches. Well, he got back to, um, to, to England, and George Whitfield, who had also been a member of this group, was beginning to be a very, very successful preacher. And in fact, he was so busy preaching that he invited uh, John Wesley to come and join him and take, take some of that load. And in fact, Wesley ended up being the main preacher at the Whitfield um, outdoor uh, rallies. And that was a radical, radical thing for the Anglican Church. These guys were Anglicans. And it was almost an affront to the bishops in the Anglican Church for anybody to be holding an outdoor service. It was anathema to them because in their minds... The only place you could do church was within the confines of one of those stone buildings with a spire and a bell and all of the things that come with 
that traditional approach to religious expression. But there was something more important than that. Uh, Whitfield was a very strong Calvinist who held to the notion of predestination, and Wesley didn't. So eventually they parted company because their thinking about important aspects of theology differed. Well, then, of course, uh, Wesley had become very well known, and he was in high demand as a preacher. He travelled something like 4,000 miles every year. Now, that might not sound a lot to you, but they didn't have motor cars back then, all right? He had to do it on horseback. And he wrote little pamphlets that sold. In fact, he was a bit like today's tele-evangelists without the television. So he's quite a celebrity. A lot of people uh, wanted to be in his company. Uh, young women in the church were especially attracted to him. And there's some evidence that he was a little bit attracted to them as well. Although no evidence of any kind of sexual infidelity. But he did form a lot of close relationships with young women who were part of the Methodist movement. So he's doing a lot of travel, he's doing a lot of preaching, and, uh, and a lot of writing as well. And he created a, a systematic theology, which became the basis of Methodism, which they called it the, the method. He never left the Anglican Church, although the, the group of, of people who became eventually known as Methodists, they, they eventually did separate from the Anglican Church after his death. To some extent, that was his doing because he wanted to preserve Methodism, and the Anglican Church by then wasn't really receptive to it. And so he made it possible for the Methodist Church itself to become established. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because of the massive influence he has had on Christianity over the last few hundred years, and the importance of the so-called holiness movement in the development of Pentecostalism since about the middle of the 19th century. He was married for a time, and uh, I think it's worth reflecting on this. He married in 1751 to Molly Vasili, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Unfortunately, it was a very unhappy marriage. Well, you might not expect it to be a particularly happy marriage because... He was travelling all the time. He was hardly ever home. His brother Charles was against the marriage in the first place because he felt it was going to be an absolute disaster, and it was. Wesley never mentioned his wife in his diaries, except once, and that was after she left him for the final time. She was possibly a violent woman, one of their friends walked in unexpectedly into their home one day and uh, they found her dragging him across the floor. I was trying to grab some hair. <laughs> Someone with hair. Oh, I can't. But she was dragging him across the floor by, by the hair on his head. So it wasn't a marriage that worked all that well. She was lonely. Uh, she was jealous, as you might expect, because he wasn't paying attention to her that a husband should be paying to, to their wives. My personal view is I, I don't actually think that God calls us to sacrifice other people in his work. God does not call me to sacrifice my wife in my work. Now she might release me, that's a very different thing. 
And I also caution people, don't give away 98% of your income if you're not looking after your family first. And given that there was a bit of inflation during his lifetime, so prices were rising during his lifetime, and he tried to live on 28 pounds, and he did for the whole of his life, he didn't even make an adjustment when he got married. I would never counsel anybody to do, I just don't think that's wise. And, and you don't read about this, because I mean, obviously we want to think well of those who have contributed to the development of our own uh, denomination, and you want to think well of people who've made such an enormous contribution to church life. There are about 30 million Methodists in the world today, so it's a significant denomination. And much of their teaching would also, I think, be recognised as good, solid biblical teaching. However, I think we are diminished a little, at least, if we're not able to live out everything we preach in the context of our own personal lives. And who knows the full reasons why this marriage was so unhappy. The only entry he ever wrote in his personal diaries about his wife Molly was when she left him for the final time, which she did in um, 1771. So they were married for, well, they were together off and on for 20 years. She left him permanently in 1771, and the only thing he ever wrote about it was, I can't remember the exact wording, but he basically said, I didn't send her away, but I'm not going to call her back. That's what he said. So, very unhappy marriage and a lack of success there. I personally caution anybody about getting so caught up in what they're doing for God that they sacrifice their family. And that many, many missionaries did it, famous missionaries. They left their wives and families in poverty for years and years to go onto the mission field. Personally, I don't approve of that. I'm sorry, but I don't approve of that. I really do believe that God wants us to place our families first. It's interesting that Wesley was very uncertain of his salvation. Uh, in his early life. And uh, he never had the experience of personal relationship uh, with God until he went to a meeting that was held by some of the Moravians in, in London. Interestingly, on his trip to Georgia, there were, there were lots of storms and, and uh, at one stage it looked as if they were going to actually lose their ship, that it was going to founder and sink. And lots of people, of course, were worried, including him. But he noticed that the group of Moravians who were on the same boat, they were on their way to um, become uh, missionaries to the Indian tribes. They stayed absolutely calm. They were the only ones on the boat who didn't panic. Oops, that clock says, um, it says 20 past something. It's not actually 20 past anything. It's been saying that time for three or four weeks. So... Um, I don't even know whether I'll finish my main point. This is ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, he's, he's talking to the Moravians and he says, well, why is it that you didn't show the fear that the rest of us did? And they, and they answered him with a question and they said, do you believe in Christ? And he said, yes, I do. 
But he wrote later in his diary, I fear those words were in vain. And it wasn't until 1738, he had an experience that changed him forever. He went to a meeting, and he recorded this, it was a meeting of the Moravians. And uh, he recorded this in his diary. In the evening, this is May 24, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Adding, uh, Ab Aldersgate Street, uh, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing uh, the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that was the moment that changed his life and ultimately changed much of the world. So he was an incredible preacher. Sadly, his, um, his marriage didn't, didn't work so well and things might have been very different had he taken some different decisions. And I, I do happen to believe, mind you, that God will get his work done. And uh, if one person isn't available, he will use other people because there are always people saying, yes, I'm available for you to use. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about his sermon on the use of money. Now, I wanted to give you that background because some of what he wrote, he didn't necessarily actually display in his own personal life. And that's not critical, that's just a plain fact. And you know what? If you look at most of us, if you very carefully record everything I say up here on a Sunday morning and actually compare it to all the details of my life, you might draw the conclusion that I'm a hypocrite. You know, because we don't always live as we intend to. In the heat of the moment, we might fall to, to temptation. So I'm not really being critical. I, I, I just want to be realistic about his life. He's fallen in many ways like the rest of us. And uh, so he's, he, even though he's very famous, he's not necessarily so different to most of us. By the way, when he died in 1791 at 87 years of age, he only had a few silver coins in his pocket. And uh, so he left nothing. Mind you, he didn't have children, so I suppose it didn't matter. But he didn't leave anything for future generations. And I, I think there is a biblical principle that we do actually need to leave something for for future generations. It's, it's interesting, just as an aside, that in 1776, the, the tax authorities in, uh, in England came after him because they figured out that he was getting, you know, a thousand pounds plus every year and he wasn't paying tax on the silver uh, table service. So they came to him and said, look, a man of your means must at least have some silver plates you should have paid tax on them. And he wrote back and said, no, I don't own any silver plates. The only silver I have is four spoons. I have two spoons in, in uh, London and two spoons in Bristol. And so they didn't tax him. But even back then, the tax man got a bit suspicious. If uh, 
the way you lived didn't quite tally with, with, uh, with your income and they obviously thought you'd own some silver. And back then, it wasn't easy to tax income because so much income wasn't actually earned in, in monetary terms and so they taxed commodities instead. Anyway, he got out of that. That's way back in 1776. Um, sorry, he owned two spoons in Oxford, not London. He lived in Oxford. That's where he taught. And um, he went to Bristol often because that was where he was born. His family lived. Anyway, so what did he have to say in this sermon? It's actually pretty simple. Three principles. And it's not a very long sermon. It only runs for a few pages when it's all written up. But his principles... Principles were very, very simple. Gain all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Simple as that. Gain all you can. These are his words too. Save all you can. Give all you can. Now, you've got to be a bit careful, of course, how simplistically you interpret that. And, and he put a lot of meat on those bones. But essentially, the idea of gaining all he can, he placed a very high value on work. And as you know, so do we here, that we're created for work. That becomes very clear when you read the first three books of Genesis. So, you know, God in Genesis 1 gives us dominion. In Genesis 2, he commands Adam and Eve, you just have to read through a couple of verses um, ahead, uh, to tend the garden or to look after the garden. That requires work. So the way in which we exercise dominion is through work. And God holds us accountable for the way in which we exercise dominion. And then we read, of course, in, in a little bit further on, in chapter 3 of, of Genesis, that God used to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening and simply converse with Adam and Eve. And he'll do that. That's what prayer is all about. So Wesley had some understanding of that and placed a very high value on, on work. And we've talked about it's not just paid employment and all sorts of things. We won't go into that now, but of course I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. So, you need to work, and through work you gain, in his terms, you gain money. Now he also said you need to be a bit careful about work. He said quite clearly, some work is forbidden in the Word of God. And one of the examples he used was prostitution. So, to gain all you can doesn't mean to go off and do any kind of work. That There are some restrictions on work that are pretty clear from the biblical text. But also, he said, don't endanger yourself or anybody else in the work that you do. Who knows what the most dangerous work in the world is today? Want to guess? I've checked it up so I know the answer. Mining. Eh? Mining. No, it's not actually. Uh, underwater welding. He's remembered because I've said it before, haven't I? Is that. Did you. Oh, no, no, no. You just knew it. Underwater welding. Underwater welding. Uh, it's the most dangerous work in the world. And um, so. I would say, John Wesley would say, don't be an underwater welder. <laughs> I know a bloke who was an underwater welder, for, underwater welder for a little while, made a lot of money out of it, but it's a pretty dangerous job. So, um, 
So don't do anything that the Bible forbids and be very sensitive about the dangers either to yourself or other people as a result of the work you do. Perhaps you shouldn't be a mercenary either because mercenaries go about killing people for payment. That kind of damages other people a bit, doesn't it? Anyway, so you need to apply some wisdom in terms of your choice of work. But work diligently so that you can gain as much money as you can. So his second point was, save all you can. And I find this very, very interesting. Uh, we saw that he was a great saver. He managed to live his entire life on 28 pounds a year. And by the end of his life, he was giving away pretty close to 100%. 98% at least he gave away every year. Now, I don't recommend that. Because one of the things he said was, in saving, be generous to your household. Now, I would say he wasn't generous to his own household. But at least when he wrote this sermon, this is what he said, be generous to your household. And back then your household was your spouse, your wife, your children, and your servants. Because people generally, uh, people who had reasonable employment, reasonable income, they had servants. So he said, listen, before you save everything that you can, be generous, be kind to your own wife, your children, and your servants, your whole household. So how would we interpret that today? Well, clearly, we still have wives, we still have children, so be generous to wife, husband, children. He was very... Uh, wary about spoiling kids, by the way, so he never ever recommended to give children everything they asked for because he thought that that would only develop uh, children into the kind of adults who would never be givers, that they would just want all the time. And there's a biblical basis for that, of course, because in Ecclesiastes it says, He who longs after God will never be satisfied. So if you raise up your children so that they long after things, guess what? They will never be satisfied. And uh, that's what lies behind modern day consumerism. We are never satisfied until we get the latest mobile phone or we have the, the latest uh, model of motor vehicle in our driveway or we have a, a, a boat you know, and all kinds of things. And these days most people work to get the income to have a nice weekend. It's true. It's actually true based on surveys. People don't work because they enjoy work. They work because they want to earn the income to pay the bills and then have enough left over to take the pain of work away on the weekend. It's a very sad, sad indictment of consumerism today. But he was well aware of that. But nevertheless, he said, be generous. And I think it's really important. You know, one of the ways in which we can show that we love our families is to be generous without being silly. Yeah? Then save everything you can. So don't be frivolous. Does this mean you can never treat yourself? No. You've got to be kind to yourself. And there's nothing wrong with saving up for something that you've desired to have uh, for a long period of time. My wife's not here at the moment. She's out there with the, the children. Uh, for her, her, her uh, Mother's Day, which we had a few weeks ago, I, go, I gave her some money. Now, you might think, oh, gee, money, why don't you put some thought into it? 
it's okay in our family to do that, alright? So, Jeanette's happy to receive money and, and generally we will then go out shopping some, somewhere on a special day and um, she can spend the money. But uh, she actually didn't. She put the money in an envelope last week and uh, we, we've got this plan for sowing seed, literal seed. We'll explain it all um, probably in a few weeks' time. Um, we're still in the planning stage, but remember when earlier in, in, the, in the year we had the little packets of seed that we distributed? That was, that was part of our kind of introduction to 2019. We're going to do that on a much larger scale. Jeanette actually sowed her entire Mother's Day money to help fund that project. That's generosity, right? That's saving all you can. Now, she doesn't do that every year, but she felt God say, do it, yep, sow it. And I'm sure that God will reward her. Well, she's got this beautiful husband and everything. Who <laughs> <laughs> sings and dances in the kitchen. <laughs> Seen our kitchen? Not that big. <laughs> Toilet might be bigger. <laughs> anyway, so he says, so save all you can, but don't go to such an extreme that your own family suffer. And I've seen people who become so caught up with supporting ministries or, or something else like that, that in fact their families do suffer. It's not generally a good witness. So be generous to your kids. Just don't be silly with them, alright? And the final one was give all you can. And we saw he gave away plenty. Um, I know I, I did start uh, working out how much we gave each year and I felt God say to me, stop doing it. He knows my weaknesses because I'd probably kind of sit back a bit and start getting a little bit comfortable and, and um, proud of myself. So I just stopped doing it so I don't know how much we give. Um, but I've come across people who give 30% or more of their, their income and to be sure, they're fairly high income earners. Both husband and wife work, and uh, they're each bringing in probably 150,000 a year. So they, 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 they can give a lot more than other people can as a proportion of their, of their income. But I think the import of what Wesley was saying was, listen, it's not about just stopping at a time. It's not even about the time. In fact, look, in his whole sermon, he never mentions the word tithe once. And I think that's consistent with the principle that Jesus introduced. He's quoted as saying in Acts chapter 20, it is more blessed to give than receive. End of story. No percentage, no amount, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It blesses other people and it blesses you. So I think Wesley got a kind of inkling of that, although he didn't quote that Bible verse. But he never uses the word tithing, but he simply says, give all you can. Give all you can. And in his day, if people in the church weren't giving, there was no relief for the poor, because the government was not involved in assisting the poor at all. Now, to be... You know, he was a very wise man. He didn't believe that charity was the way to go. That he actually had to get people into a position where they 
could gain all you can. Mm -hmm. That is, you had to get people into a position where they could work so that they would no longer have to rely on charity. And I, I believe that that's God's pathway for us as well. Just very quickly, in terms of oh my goodness, in terms of what we're doing as a as a church, uh, you know that we raise money for sewing machines, and we're bringing in bottles. And uh, every Monday or Tuesday, Jeanette and Ainsley used to go and get the bottles cashed in. Uh, we did meet that target of eight hundred dollars for sewing machines, and so four sewing machines are on their way to uh, to be used by families in uh, in Uganda associated with the work at Ignite Life Church there. Uh, when we met with um, Keith and Pecker, our, our senior pastors, a few weeks ago, they said, would you be prepared to continue some involvement? We said, yes. Uh, there is a need at the school. We have a school over there with about 400 uh, students in it. It's a primary school uh, where kids can become literate and numerate. And uh, we've been asked if we can help uh, maintain the salary of the school principal. Now, it's 200,000 shillings a month. Sounds a lot, but shillings, it's Ugandan shillings, not Australian dollars. It actually amounts to about 80 Australian dollars a month. So, we would like you, as a small act of generosity, to keep on bringing in those bottles for the 10 cent refund. And uh, Jeanette and Ainsley will look after them, they'll get them, them refunded. And uh, we'd like to raise $80 a month through that, and anybody who wants to give dollars into it, I, I don't actually drink much out of bottles, so I, I, only buy, I buy only have two bottles a week to bring in. Um, other people I know have a lot more than that, and so we're just putting it out there, um, but if you feel to, to provide some dollars as well, let us know so that we can make sure that that is, that is earmarked. And that's a very, very small means of generosity, but it is so important that people in these poor situations have education. Good education, good health, and then businesses that offer people employment, that's how you get out of poverty. All you can do when you give money into some kind of charitable um, operation, that breaks the cycle and gives people an opportunity. That itself doesn't break poverty. It's getting people off charity and into work, which is paid, that's what gets them out of poverty. But they need not only education, they need to be in good health, and they need to have an opportunity to work. So you've got to have good health, good education, and good business, all, all three. And we are in some small ways doing that uh, in Uganda, and of course there's a long way to go yet. Anyway, that's enough of me, more than enough of me. You've probably had too much of me, I reckon it's time for a bickie and a cup of coffee. So God bless you so much for being here. Enjoy some community time. And uh, we'll catch you soon.